Welcome back to Russian Roulette, the podcast from the Europe, Russia, and Eurasian program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I'm your host, Heather Conley. In this first episode of the new year, I have the pleasure of sitting down with Rebecca Hersman, Director of the Project on Nuclear Issues, also known as PONY, and Senior Advisor, International Security Program at CSIS. And we're delighted to welcome Dmitry Stefanovich, Research Fellow at the Center for International Security at Primakov Institute of World Economy and International Relations in Moscow. We discuss the extension of the New START Treaty, why President Biden is seeking to extend this treaty for five more years, what happens next, and what the extension means for strategic stability and the U.S.-Russian relationship, a bilateral relationship that is deeply troubled. Let's get started. Welcome, Rebecca, Dimitri. We're so delighted to have you. And I feel like before we have this conversation, we almost have to begin with uh, at the beginning of the New START Treaty. What did it do? Why was it so important? So, Rebecca, I'm going to start with you from the American perspective, and then I'm going to turn to Dimitri, obviously, for the Russian perspective. So when the New START Treaty was signed... Why was it so important? What did it do? Why is it important to extend? Well, thanks, Heather, and thanks for having me here. It's a pleasure to talk with you all today. When uh, President Obama came into office, he too had what seemed at the time an urgent crisis to come up with a follow-on to the then START Treaty. And so we kind of forget about that, that there was this whole uh, one-year countdown, uh, or sort of less than a year, to be able to get a follow-on treaty. And it was negotiated uh, throughout the first year plus of the Obama administration. So it was critically important. And it was seen as a very top priority to make sure that there was a bilateral legal instrument governing the size and shape of strategic nuclear forces between the United States and Russia. And that is the treaty which is now set to expire uh, less than two weeks from now. Rebecca, remind us quickly of the limitations of both the delivery uh, systems and, and, and the weapons, just for our audience. Sure. Well, the treaty caps overall um, deployed nuclear weapons at, uh, at 1,500 across 700 what's called launchers or delivery systems that can be configured in somewhat different ways. And the two countries do that. Um, So those are the obvious sort of limitations inside the treaty. But importantly, the treaty has a lot of other mechanisms and arrangements in terms of information sharing, in terms of verification measures, uh, in terms of um, even dispute resolution mechanisms that keep the two countries talking together and working through some difficult issues. Thanks, Rebecca. Dimitri, let me turn to you. Why was the New START Treaty so important for Russia at the time of the signing, obviously, there was a, a reset that the Obama administration had initiated when uh, Barack Obama entered the White House in 2009. The New START Treaty was definitely a, an important strategic objective of resetting uh, the U.S.-Russian relationship. But why was it important for, for Russia? Heather, thanks for having me and thanks CSIS. Happy to be here. And uh, from the Russian perspective, uh, New START was important, as Rebecca said, to continue the tradition of legally binding nuclear strategic arms control treaties. Uh, But at the same time, the total limits 
total uh, ceilings of warheads because of the counting rules of New Start were not that dramatic uh, given the general trends of the Russian strategic nuclear forces uh, development and also given the numbers the parties agreed to before uh, with the presidents Bush and Putin in the SORT, S-O-R-T treaty, because in the SORT there was some uh, serious issues with counting because there was actually no single approach to how to do this. But in fact, New START didn't provide for some dramatic cuts in uh, nuclear weapons. But for Russia, it was extremely important because uh, it provided that both countries will remain in some sort of parity with regard to strategic delivery vehicles. And a small personal note, uh, we all know here that uh, New START accounts strategic bombers as one warhead, uh, no matter how many actual missiles they can carry. Uh, the heavy bombers, as they named this new start. And uh, there were a lot of uh, negative comments from different Russian experts and journalists and former officials that this is something very bad. It is uh, asymmetrical. It gives advantage to the U.S. And then one day I was very much surprised to realize that roughly the same arguments were made by some U.S. experts and U.S. former officials. This is bad, it gives advantages to the Russians. And from this, I actually realized that probably New START is extremely balanced treaty. Because when in each country there are people who are criticizing the very same provisions, it means that probably for the people who are in charge, for the people who actually hold posts uh, are responsible for national security, it makes total sense to achieve this parity. Uh, in the end, New START is uh, extremely important. And uh, all people in the Russian leadership, the president himself, the in min- people in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, in Security Council, and Ministry of Defense, they are all absolutely clear that Russia needs New START. Not because it gives some advantages or whatsoever, but because, uh, well, believe it or not, but Russian leadership thinks that arms control is useful for national security. And uh, actually, I think it is uh, it is good that there is such clear statements on this topic. Dimitri, thank you so much, and for also raising this long history and tradition. Even you know during the darkest days of the Cold War, strategic stability, arms control conversations were were an essential pillar of the bilateral relations. From salt to to sort to new start, we have lots of acronyms that can uh, be quite confusing. But there's always been this long-held tradition. And I, and I also want to highlight one thing that, that Rebecca discussed, and we're going to talk about that a little bit more, but this it's not just about the numerical parity. Um, and you're right, Dimitri, when both sides don't like the deal, you probably have found the sweet spot for, for, the, for the negotiation. But it is about information sharing, verification, that essential element of trust. And we're going to talk about the lack of trust right now that exists between the two countries in this particular space. But this is extremely important uh, to, to make sure that there's been a long tradition of this, but it's not easy. And let's talk about the not easy part. And I, one thing I did want to uh, mention and certainly tell our audience, Dimitri and Rebecca were part of a, a really important track two dialogue that CSIS held with our colleagues in Moscow at the Peer Center that uh, over several days of in-depth virtual conversations, 
looked at a range of strategic stability issues. And in some ways, this conversation brings me back to that rich dialogue that we had as part of that track to dialogue. So I'm so grateful again to you both for, for being here. But let me talk about that long tradition because New START was part of a larger arms control architecture that uh, had included the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, the INF Treaty. And now the United States and Russia are no longer part of the INF Treaty. In some ways, New START is the pillar here, the one shaky pillar potentially of, of arms control. Um, Rebecca, help us understand sort of where we are in the arms control universe right now. We need to build that new scaffolding, that new architecture, uh, and it's been very complicated in doing so. Could you help us understand where New START Treaty fits into that larger arms control architecture? I choose to be an optimist, so I'm going to describe it this way. I actually think in the world of arms control, we're really on the precipice of a new day, a new way of thinking about arms control, a new way of thinking about reducing strategic risk to the countries involved in a way that may look and feel quite different from the arms control of the past. You know, looking forward, we're going to have to deal with long range conventional strategic delivery systems, perhaps, or we might be dealing with space-based challenges in arms control, or even things in our digital information ecosystem or cyber. So we have this large, complex technical universe that sort of is crying out, right, for some rules of the road, um, and we haven't really made them yet. The problem is, as you described, the scaffolding of the past is sort of eroding out from under us before we've rebuilt, right, the structure of the future. And we need to hang on to that scaffolding because it will, you know, give us enough foundation to go out. So we've got to kind of hang on to that. And in that sense, New Start really is foundational. And it's important not just to the United States and Russia, in terms of having a scaffolding, having, a, as you said, a scaffolding, but sort of a foundation on which we can build out future architectures. But it's very important to so many other countries in the world who look to the United States and Russia for leadership and who see the decline of arms control as a harbinger of a much more dangerous world, a world in which nuclear risks are sort of running rampant in a space where they have no control and no voice, and they're dependent upon us to kind of keep that foundation intact. So I wouldn't underestimate actually how important this is, not just to the two countries most directly involved, but to the many tens of countries who are watching kind of with bated breath on, on the outside. Thanks, Rebecca. Dimitri, from the Russian perspective, how do you look at the arms control scaffolding? I am always impressed at the depth of Russian strategic thinking in this space. And, you know, you are one of the new leaders and new voices in in that rich discussion. But how do you see New Start? How do you see the future evolving? Because we'll we'll talk about this uh, in, in a few moments, but this is no longer the sole territory of the United States and Russia. This is now a multilateral conversation, something that actually gooed up a little bit of the New Start extension conversation because China's not in it, uh, in this multilateral uh, arms control conversation. What's the perspective from Moscow on all of this? Thanks for kind words. And I can only agree with Rebecca about that fact that there are many countries that look at uh, Russia and then the US for leadership. But at the same time, Russia and the U.S. must look at these other countries 
when we think about how to move forward bilaterally, because the U.S. has uh, numbers of allies and partners. Uh, Russia also has partners and allies to some extent. And all these countries very much uh, interested in uh, preserving the strategic stability between Russia and the U.S. Because again, even uh, the the closest U.S. allies, even given the current situation between Russia and the U.S., even those countries are interested in having like more or less stable relationship with Russia and vice versa. Many countries who are allied or aligned with Russia are interested in normal relations with the U.S. So yeah, we're in the multi multipolar or polycentric world and uh, this affects a lot. But speaking about New START, I think one of the biggest pillars, but uh, one of the biggest advantages it provides for both countries, and actually I think this is one of the most important factors of arms control, that we have more or less determined future. Uh, both countries have relatively clear understanding of what they're up to in the strategic domain, in the strategic weapons. Of course, there is always intelligence, there are national technical means, there are public documents and doctrines, but with New START, we get another level of transparency, another level of confidence. And that's why the countries can plan not for the worst case scenarios, but for the real world scenarios. Because if there are no instruments like New START, then, well, all the plans that are like 10-year plans, 20-year plans in development of the strategic forces will have to be changed because everyone will believe that their opponent, their adversary is uh, looking forward to gain some kind of advantage. And actually, the situation with New START extension talks that took place last year with the previous year administration, with Marshall Billingsley, there was one case when there was rather clear threat by the U.S. side that uh, they will go in uh, uploading the e excessive warheads to Minutemen ICBMs and things like that. And there were actual tests and uh, some very clear photos published in Marshall Billingsley's Twitter that they're intending to be prepared to do so. Uh, this was actually a rather bad move because basically there were a number of Russian concerns with the U.S. compliance with New START uh, in terms of reduction of number of these or that types of launchers. And then when U.S. officials says that, well, we will reverse everything, it uh, basically says that Russian concerns are not groundless and some solutions have to be found. And actually, but then, to credit of Marshall Billingsley, he also was quite clear in stating that both countries, despite all these disagreements, moved closer to finding a solution to one of these concerns, uh, namely a reduction of number of launch tubes for Trident submarine-launched ballistic missiles on uh, Ohio submarines. So even under most difficult conditions, our countries, our negotiators, looks like they have achieved some progress. And that's uh, basically one of the most important takeaways, uh, that no arms control treaty is perfect, but the instruments included in the arms control treaty should be used to find solutions to such concerns. Well, Dimitri, thank you. I mean, you really highlight, I think, two really important issues. Uh, number one, I'm speaking now more of the withdrawal from the INF treaty. When both sides lack the clear understanding of each other's strategic advantages, when there isn't that transparency, um, what happens is then we start seeing that uh, cycle of instability that Rebecca was speaking of. 
Um, and then you start making significant adjustments and there isn't that clear understanding. So that's absolutely uh, key. But as you noted, even in very difficult issues, both sides understand the importance of this and will seek that compromise. So really, really important. Let's turn our conversation. So we've really focused on everything leading up to and then up to the extension, which needs to be completed by February the 5th. But I think we feel secure in it, at least as far as we know, it's, it's a clean extension, meaning there's no conditionality uh, placed on that. So February 5th arrives, we have five years and we have so much to do. So let me turn to the future and, and the next steps, um, because five years sounds like a long time. It's not when you're doing something this complex. And for me, the, the two issues that seem to be the, the most significant challenges, uh, but argue with me, please, Rebecca, it's getting uh, this extension to address new technologies, the so-called exotics. Cyber and AI play particularly and weigh heavily on this issue. How can uh, this extension be used? As you rightly noted, the United States and Russia set the arms control pace here globally. How can the next five years be uh, used to address the new technologies that we are really becoming challenged with? Let me start with that, and then we, we can turn to Dimitri for his thoughts. Well, thank you. I, you know, this is such a tough question, right? Because there's so much ground in that new technology space to cover that it's difficult to think about how to prioritize and also how to organize our thinking. What do we want to control? Do we want to control effects? Do we want, you know, impact, um, you know, things that cause the most damage? We want to be threshold oriented. Do we want to control certain types of technologies? Do we want to control numbers of, of things, you know, kind of numerical limits like what we're used to? And we're used to thinking of things in these topical groups, you know. But I think when we had our discussion during the, the bilateral dialogue, we got to a place of thinking more about what are the situations or circumstances that we think pose the greatest risk? And how do we look at those, perhaps agree on those, and then see how might we manage stability and the risk of escalation in some of those contexts? And would that give us a sense of priority, right? Would that help us focus in on the top two or three things that we could work on together in a sense of mutual interest and, and try to reduce those risks? You know, is it certain competitive behaviors in space? Is it areas where we are engaging in too many um, close and provocative, even conventional military uh, confrontations? Or is it the way we think about dealing with cyber challenges and cyber espionage and the relationship between cyber espionage and cyber attack? Um, are there ways we could focus on preserving nuclear command and control and protecting it from intrusion as a way of providing stability and confidence uh, in our systems? And how might we protect that from cyber and other threats? So I think looking at some of those situations might give us you know, some stars to steer by, right, as we think about how to go forward. Dimitri, let me turn to you and ask uh, exactly in Rebecca's terms, how would you prioritize and organize? How would you recommend to the Russian government to use the next five years wisely in order to get to a place where both sides feel greater comfort of stability and, and transparency? First uh, things first, I think the main challenge or main task 
would be to restart actual procedures from the new start because we didn't have uh, bilateral consultation commission meetings we almost did not have any inspections that are provided for in the new start so i think to find a way to continue these activities given the pandemic would be like the first priority before we go into other domains but then as the new start will be secured and uh, will work appropriately and probably during the bilateral consultation committee meetings uh, and commission meetings and things like that we will find solutions to mutual concerns with regard to uh, some new Russian weapons and uh, some uh, U.S. methods of uh, reducing numbers of launchers. These tasks are highly technical, but I believe uh, if our negotiators, if our responsible uh, people will find solutions uh, there, it would be a good step towards new domains. And then I can only agree with Rebecca. We probably need to find a way to agree on what not to do, for example. And nuclear command control communications are probably one of the domains on which we can agree that those cannot be attacked or interfered with in any manner. It doesn't really matter what would it be, like cyber attack or electronic warfare spoofing of satellites that are used to relay nuclear commands. They are all very important. They are all very challenging. Actually, there is room for some agreement because these challenges are more or less uh, clearly uh, emphasized in uh, actual uh, nuclear doctrinal documents in the U.S. Nuclear Posture Review in the basic principles uh, of Russian state policy on nuclear deterrence uh, that were released last year, they mention that the threats to nuclear command and control are extremely dangerous and can lead to nuclear retaliation. And that's why I think uh, this is where the countries should start talking. Non-nuclear but kinetic weapons are also important because Uh, Many people in Russia are very much concerned with the possibility of disarming or decapitating non-nuclear strike from the U.S. And if there will be some uh, statement that like this or that type of targets will be never targeted by anything, including cyber, including hypersonic weapons, I think it it might become very stabilizing and also a good next step towards greater security. Well, I think you both really point to, I love it, you know, let's agree on what not to do. And the uh, and the, the cyber and space dimension, to me, it does appear to be a really important priority for both sides. And I think the other, the challenge is the politics of arms control does begin to loom over this negotiation process, because at the end of the five years, you need something that scaffolding has to continue to be constructed. And the, the politics of trust and confidence on both sides have to be there in order for that exchange to happen after that five-year mark. So let me ask you my final question. And it, it's really dealing with the, the, the global and multilateral perspective. The U.S.-Russian conversation is absolutely necessary, but is no longer sufficient to get to the global arms control negotiating framework that we need. So, Rebecca, you follow this uh, from a more global perspective. 
We have at some point the Non-Proliferation Treaty Review Conference, the MPT ReviewCon, RevCon. We have a variety of other uh, multilateral fora. Do you see any promise uh, in the multilateral framing of arms control and non-proliferation? And then, Demetria, let me turn to you after Rebecca's finished. And so how does how does Russia play into that? You know, there's for me, there seems to be such a desire to keep this parity and keep the U.S. and Russia in the driver's seat of this. Yet it seems to me the U.S. is really acknowledging a much broader global dimension to this, particularly of, of China. So would welcome your perspectives on that. But Rebecca, let me let me start with you. So I think that broadening our gaze to a multilateral perspective is critically important. Thinking about how to engage China bilaterally, multilaterally, trilaterally, in any other such way is critically important. But I, we're going to have to be more artful and less clunky uh, than I think we've been over the last several years. It's just not, you can't simply take a bilateral treaty and say, I want to make this multilateral um, and expect that to work. For example, we've you know heard a lot of discussion about bringing China into an arrangement such as, as New START. But frankly, the United States didn't do a very good job of talking to our other allies and partners, including the UK and France, about the implications of those types of agreements um, and caps for them. Uh, And so I think this sort of one-size-fits-all approach isn't going to work. Maybe a better way to think about it, and I apologize for the nesting doll (laughs) reference, Dimitri, but I do think that you do have some pieces that are squarely that traditional scaffolding of that need to be US Russia. There might be other things that are within that series of uh, nesting approaches and agreements that have different conglomerations of participants, and some are genuinely multilateral. I think the important thing for the US is to, on the one hand, leave our rose colored glasses at home. This is going to be hard. It's going to be difficult, and there are a lot of competing interests, and uh, it won't all be friendly and collaborative and uh, warm-spirited. It will be difficult. But we also, the United States, needs to come to these four, whether it's bilateral, multilateral, with a sense that we are genuinely committed to getting to agreement and not that we are trying to kind of insert poison pills to undermine multilateral progress rather than advance it. The only other thing I'm going to add to that, and I think this is something that in a way Dimitri has raised, don't forget arms control isn't just a matter of policy, it's a matter of politics, certainly is in the US polity. So there will be a lot of politics associated with this and sensitivities across a wide range of views on nuclear policy and on Capitol Hill. Um, So we're already seeing some of the reverberations of that. And those will only intensify uh, because in the realm of nuclear policy, politics um, and party politics play pretty strongly. And I think we're going to be wrestling our, our way with that as we go forward. So I think we have some introspection to work on um, as we go through this transition to the new administration. And that's some work for us to do internally. Thanks, Rebecca. Dimitri. I can only agree to what Rebecca said, but uh, there was very good reference about U.S. push to bring China into some uh, kind of trilateral new start type agreement and that uh, the U.S. didn't quite do a uh, homework and prepared 
to make it something realistic. Actually, there was one another example where both Moscow and Washington, from my perspective, failed miserably to achieve multilateral regime. It was with the INF Treaty back in the, I believe it was uh, 2007, when, uh, well, both countries simply offered everyone to join without actually considering that probably every other country than Russia and the US have the missiles of uh, relevant classes, like intermediate range, for totally different reasons than uh, and different missions than those provisioned for uh, Pershings and Pioneers and uh, Gryphons back in the 80s. So we simply often fail to acknowledge the security perspectives and security dilemmas of other countries of the world. And I think this is what uh, probably deserves uh, great attention, both from the politicians and academia. And actually, academia does quite a solid uh, work in this regard to get insights into why these or that countries actually pursue these or that kinds of weapons. This is extremely important to have this understanding if you want to move to multilateral regimes. With China, it was also well rather funny that the arguments that the Russian officials used on why they will not engage in China on the US behalf and ask China to join or force China to join because they have some fictional leverage over China. These arguments uh, why we will not do that are roughly the same that the US uh, used explaining why they will never push uh, France and the UK to join some multilateral regime because those are sovereign states and they can uh, play for themselves. But at the same time, we have this uh, forum like P5 process where at least I hope uh, the officials from all five official nuclear weapon states engage in uh, proper discussions of their doctrines. This is actually a good move forward. And I think that one of the easiest steps for the future, for at least in the P5 format, or probably even more broad format, would be to reach some kind of agreement on uh, long-range missile launch notifications. Because in the end, like we have uh, such regime between uh, Russia and the US, we have a somewhat more primitive, more simple regime between Russia and China. We have Hague Code of Conduct and other instruments. So I think that P5 agreement on uh, long-range missile launch notifications is something achievable, something with very limited price, if I may say so, both domestically and internationally, and with a great outcome, because it will demonstrate that, well, we are actually concerned uh, with uh, international security, and we actually are looking for working arms control solutions. Dimitri, that's just an, another great idea. And I, I think keeping in the, the thought process of, of Rebecca's, you know, of a, a new day uh, of optimism in, in arms control, it's exactly that. It's, it's potentially at the P5 getting guiding principles, starting to re, uh, build those blocks of, of confidence and trust that will be that, that important new arms control scaffolding. Well, my great thanks to you both. This was such a great discussion. Um, there is so much work to be done, but I heard in our discussion a lot of new ideas, optimism, 
um, clear-eyed understanding of, of the challenges that are ahead and, and the deep distrust that remains between the United States and Russia. But uh, I think perhaps uh, the new START treaty and an extension can at least bring uh, some element of stability to this uh, difficult relationship. So again, let me thank you both, Rebecca and Dimitri. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Heather. Thank you. That's it for our show today. We'll provide a link to Rebecca and Dimitri's bios in the show notes, as well as their Twitter handles. For those of you who haven't already joined us, please consider subscribing to the podcast on iTunes and are leaving us a rating and review as well. If you are not an iTunes user, you can stream the podcast on Spotify. And again, keep spreading the word. Finally, I'd like to take the time to thank everyone who worked so hard to make Russian Roulette possible, including our wonderful producer, program manager, and research associate, Roxana Gabudulina, and the entire CSIS External Relations and our Ideas Lab team. Stay safe and healthy, everyone. Happy New Year, and thanks for listening.